pleasure tonight to introduce to you Dr. Rick Potts. Dr. Potts received his BA in Anthropology at Temple University. He went on to get a PhD from Harvard in Paleontology. His specialty was uh, a lower Pleistocene sites at, at Olduvai. So ever since then, he's done a lot of work in, in East Africa. You'll hear more about that. After a few years at Yale and a uh, promising uh, tenure career, he moved on to the Smithsonian, where he has been ever since. And in his last 25 years, he's going to be telling us very much about his life's passion and what he wants to do and his uh, achieving in terms of, of helping us public to understand more about the, the uh, hot topic of human origins. He is now the director of human origins program at Smithsonian. He's the curator of the Department of Anthropology at the Smithsonian. And how in the world did I get to know Rick Potts? Well, the story starts a little over a year ago in uh, uh, June when I was invited by Jim Miller and Connie Burke to come down to Washington for a meeting of what's called a Broad Social Impact Committee. Now that's not exactly a name that rolls off the tongue, and it's not exactly obvious as to what it all means. And we always shorten it to BSIC, which is still uh, more confusing, but being in Washington, we, we need the acronym. Now, in order to attend, I, I had to forego a, a uh, Templeton Foundation members meeting, and I said, well, all right, we'll come here instead. I'll see what it's all about. And I came here to discover that this was a, a committee uh, conceived of and organized by uh, Dr. Potts, specifically because of his interest in the issue of human origins and the sensitivity to people of all types of faith and the importance of it relationship of human origins on our uh, faith and value system. And he wanted a broad dialogue to occur with people of all faiths. And I found a committee that really represented virtually every faith in, in, uh, uh, in the world, from the Eastern religions to Judaism uh, to the uh, Native American issues. And I, we thoroughly enjoyed 24 hours at the museum. Uh, Still not sure it was delivered or not, but they almost locked us in the museum that night. We stayed so late. We wanted to relive the movie, but uh, it was close. But at that meeting, I sensed that uh, uh, Rick had a real passion, not only for the scientific work, but for people and their understanding and uh, their beliefs. He expressed that in many ways. So I asked him at the time, I told him about our meeting here in, in Washington, and I asked him if he might be available to speak. And he asked about the dates, and he clearly wanted to. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be at Kenya at that time. Well, I said, Kenya is too bad. Well, maybe you can get one of your, your staff or someone else to, to do it. Well, we put it in the back burner a while. Last March, we came back for the opening. The exhibit opened on March 17th, and our committee met again that uh, weekend. And again, this topic came up, and you know what he said? He said, you know, I value the ASA, now that I know more about it, he didn't know what the ASA was before the first meeting, I knew. Uh, but he says, I would really value the feedback and the interaction with your organization 
I would like to come back from Kenya specifically to meet with you and to talk to you. Uh, and he did. He's here, he flew in from uh, Kenya, the field work that he's doing over there. Uh, he came in, he gave uh, some of us a uh, private after hours tour on Thursday night of the exhibit, some feedback. We'll be providing him with some more uh, specific written feedback on, on that. Um, in re return, he asked me to help out on his Hot Topics Friday afternoon, which was a lot of fun. The public forum that they hosted at the exhibit on issues of, of uh, science and faith every other month uh, over there. And now tonight, he's agreed to come and share us some, some insights about his work on human origin and his, his uh, comments on challenges to understanding human evolution in a religious context. Uh, Rick, we're just thrilled to have you here. Uh, please join me in giving him a very warm welcome. Thank you. Is this working okay? Can you hear me all right? A little bit louder? Okay. Well, thank you very much, Randy, for the um, terrific introduction. Um, although I, uh, I cannot wait to get back to my excavations, I get almost uh, hour reports on what's going on at them. Um, I, leave, uh, I leave tomorrow uh, afternoon uh, to get back to them, but um, this, is, this is the reason why I came back. I'm here for only six days. By Thursday, I had barely gotten over jet lag. Some of you might say I did not ha had not gotten over jet lag by that point. Um, so I'm uh, ready to, to go through it again, uh, but uh, this is a, a, great, uh, a great honor for me to, uh, to come to, to speak with you tonight. I've had a, a terrific chance to get to know Randy a little bit and uh, Jennifer Weissman and uh, a number, a few of you uh, as well. And uh, that's, uh, that's been, a, uh, I hope, the beginning of a, uh, a wonderful uh, uh, getting to know each other and familiarity. Uh, and so I realize that my efforts uh, tonight are at least twofold. And uh, one is to present some of the, uh, the overarching dimensions or aspects of the, uh, uh, the latest science in, uh, uh, in human origins and human evolution specifically. Uh, and to do this to a scientifically oriented audience, yourselves. Um, I would like to do this by focusing on the approaches that we have um, developed in the main event that has occurred in Washington, D.C. on this topic of human evolution, and that is the opening of the David H. Koch Hall of Human Origins in the National Museum of Natural History. The, uh, the second, and in some ways more important, but one that I will only uh, address in some of my uh, concluding comments, um, is, uh, is how we approach or how we may approach uh, a, a useful, productive uh, conversation on this topic in our society. Uh, it's certainly one of the most challenging areas um, of, uh, of science in terms of what it poses to the public's understanding uh, of the world. And it is, of course, as you all know, a, a source of long-term conflict um, this is the subject of, uh, of human evolution uh, when considered in the light of religious but also specifically uh, Christian understandings and insights about the world. Uh, for the most part, 
um, I would claim that this, uh, this discourse um, has uh, been strongly shaped by uh, scientists who are in many ways averse to religion uh, and also by um, religious authorities or at least people coming from a religious perspective uh, who are opposed to the scientific foundation of evolution. Um, and a point that I would like to make at the outset is that it's very important that um, uh, those, uh, if we may roughly call them, those two um, areas or, of, uh, or populations of people, um, aren't, they're not the right ones to lead the dialogue, uh, the potential for the conversation. Uh, but rather, um, it's those who have spent years uh, practicing scientific research or at least uh, very knowledgeable about um, the processes of, of science, the methods of science on the one hand, and those who have taken part in Christian fellowship on the other who should be leading uh, that dialogue. Um, and so I cannot think of an, a more important group uh, than, uh, than you, than this organization, uh, in discussing the, the challenges and the opportunities uh, for a conversation on this topic. Uh, this is where I just came from, um, in the East African Rift Valley, the site, a site in southern Kenya with the long, somewhat unpronounceable name of Alor Gisaili. Uh, it's a Maasai term. No one knows what it means except something about the place of the Gisilic people, but even the local Maasai people don't know who the Gisilic people were or are. Um, nonetheless, this has been my uh, home for about a quarter of my adult life. Um, go there and set up a, a, a camp each, uh, each year and explore and in a very systematic way these, uh, these eroded gullies and hillsides that contain stone artifacts and fossilized bones and a terrific um, a sequence of uh, evidence of environmental change. And because this is the Rift Valley, it's a place that's been rife with volcanic eruptions, with radioactive materials, which allow us a whole slew of, uh, to apply a whole slew of different dating methods uh, to it. And so it has become the, the best site, best, most precisely dated site in the world, uh, spanning the last about one million years, a little bit longer than that, um, that has all that evidence of environmental change, stone artifacts of ancestors, a couple of ho early human fossils, but, and also fossil, many, uh, many fossils of animals that allow us to reconstruct the ancient communities, ecological communities, and what they were like and how they changed over time. Um, I thought I'd just leave this slide up um, while I offer you a little bit about my, my background. Um, you may well wonder uh, since I am a, a research scientist uh, investigating uh, human evolution, uh, you might wonder where I may be coming from with regard to um, religious, my religious background. Uh, my background is firmly in Christian teachings. Uh, I sometimes tell my friends that I, I grew up um, as a Protestant uh, with emphasis on the protest. Uh, I, uh, I generally skipped Sunday school whenever I could to sneak into the back of the church sanctuary where I thought that there was more interesting things being said um, about um, statements and accounts of faith and, uh, and also doubt. 
And uh, perhaps uh, it was there and in my later reflections that I came to understand, uh, at least for me, that, uh, that doubt is in no way an enemy of faith. Uh, rather, doubt was and continues to be an essential fuel uh, for discovery and for both a rational and an emotional uh, deepening of, uh, of faith. And I, so I came to see hurdles and challenges um, as essential uh, for a, um, a dynamic and, and, and enlightening uh, growth in uh, my religious experiences. Oops, let's go back for a moment. Uh, and so uh, perhaps due to that early experience, um, I became uh, accustomed uh, to the value of reconciling uh, what uh, others I think we're seeing as opposites. Um, I saw how supposed conflicts are opportunities for uh, insight and, and understanding um, that transcended what others proclaimed to be irreconcilable differences and conflicts. And I realized that those, those, pro, those proclamations about irreconcilable differences and conflicts uh, often meant that they would reject things that I thought were important either scientific findings or religious insights. And I just simply could not reject both. And so perhaps due to this early religious background, it also helps to explain why I've, uh, I've traveled uh, back here to, uh, tonight to discuss the subject of human evolution uh, with some comments on the challenges uh, in the light of religious, particularly uh, Christian understandings. Uh, let me just give you then an overview of the aims of this talk. Um, I would like to just take a quick look at the main theme of the Smithsonian's Human Origins Initiative, as we call it, which consists of uh, the, uh, the centerpieces, the exhibition, um, but also it involves our research and our, uh, our educational outreach uh, events, public events. Um, I'll give you a visual tour of the new exhibition. This will be review for those of you who are able to, to, to come on, uh, on Thursday. Um, and uh, this, the exhibition is really the, 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 subs, the main substance of our public presentation of the science of human origins. And then as I mentioned at the end of the talk, I'd like to get into challenges and opportunities for conversation uh, in this area of science that is so, uh, has tended toward conflict uh, with religious understandings. Uh, the, uh, the main theme, to get to the theme of the talk, the main, or of the, uh, the Human Origins Initiative, the main theme uh, of this initiative is a question. It's not an answer, it's a question. What does it mean to be human? And our effort here is to try to articulate our presentation of the science to the much broader concerns uh, of um, how people view their concept of humanity and humanness. Uh, and so, uh, as I mentioned, it involves the exhibition, research, and educational uh, possibilities. Uh, with the, uh, the exhibition as the, uh, as the centerpiece, the exhibition is dedicated to the highest uh, quality of uh, scientific research and making the findings in this field uh, accessible, available uh, to, uh, to everyone. Um, again, through the displays in the Natural History Museum, through our public events, through programming that we're developing with uh, museums and science centers, and I hope down the road uh, with, uh, uh, with religious centers and uh, organizations 
uh, out across the, uh, the U.S., and there's been a, already a considerable amount of interest in this internationally, and uh, also with a wide variety of, uh, way of learning opportunities through the web and so on. There are many different ways of, uh, and perspectives on this question of what does it mean to be human. One could take a biological perspective that human beings have long been, well before the concepts of evolution were uh, introduced um, in a uh, systematic scientific way, uh, that we are primates. So we, we belong in the, the group known as, the biological group known as primates, and this shows the smallest of the primates, along with us, one of the larger ones. This is a pygmy marmoset. That's an adult. Uh, it, it, uh, it's about uh, six ounces and grows to about five inches, including the tail. Um, so that's one way to, to look at, at it, is to simply classify um, that part that our humanness is ensconced within a biological group known as the primates. But there are many other interesting ways to look at what it means to be human. Uh, one of them is that we, um, uh, we really, we, we're really hungry primates. Um, we, uh, we require uh, foods that are rich in energy, power-packed. And part of that is the fact that we have this enormous brain that takes such a long time to grow. And, uh, you know, as brains, you know, we always think of the brain as a terrific, terrific thing. And, yeah, of course it is. Um, at the same time, it takes up uh, only 2% of our body weight as an adult, but 20 to 25% of our resting energy metabolism. And in an individual of that age, about 60%. Of their, uh, of their energy. So as organs go, it's not a great, it's not a really good deal, uh, but we, need to, we need, need, need to fuel it. And we also, of course, require uh, the nurturing uh, of adults. And uh, part of what it means to be human is the growing complexity that has arisen uh, over time, that, or at least that distinguishes us from other uh, primates, even our closest living relatives, in terms of the amount of, of effort um, that we all took to grow up, um, the kind of nurturing that it involved. And uh, this, uh, this has entailed a, uh, and has reshaped uh, the organization of every single human society on Earth today. Another way of looking at the, uh, the question is uh, including aspects of what I just showed you is uh, through the fossil record, which is what we do in the exhibition. And this is the, uh, the skull of a, about a three-year-old child dated back, that's part of a skeleton from Ethiopia, from a site called Dikika, that's uh, dated to 3.3 million years old. And uh, from detailed uh, technologies, medical technologies that are applied to the study of this, of this individual, uh, that there have been reconstruction of the outer surface of the brain and a study of the development of the teeth that are still embedded in the jaw through CT scanning and things like that. And from this, we know that the, this individual, while bipedal, walking around on two legs and having uh, small eye teeth, uh, canine uh, teeth, uh, two of the uh, fundamental characteristics that define all members of our uh, evolutionary tree, uh, that uh, the this individual and others that have been studied from this time period uh, were, was growing up at, in terms of its teeth at the, uh, about the pace of that of an ape. 
but yet its brain was slowed, was, had already begun to slow its growth relative to that of the teeth, showing the beginning of the human pattern of slow growth of, uh, of a brain that ultimately, although this brain, the brain of this uh, species, Australopithecus afarensis, the same as Lucy's species, uh, was a small-brained um, species, but already the slowing down of growth that was important in the development of um, what I just showed you with regard to the larger brain, much larger brain species, including ourselves. Another way of <laughs> looking at what it means to be human is that uh, we, have, we have a pretty good sense of humor. Um, that's one of them, I guess you might say. But another one is that, um, is that we have an extraordinary ability to uh, read the minds of others. And uh, one can look at this in a couple of different, at least two different ways. One, that it makes us uh, really excellent at deception. <laughs> uh, but another way of looking at it is that it provides us with an, an extraordinary ability for compassion, the ability to feel what others are feeling, to think, and to ha enter into the minds of others. Like uh, this playful uh, kid is, or two kids, I have to say, are, uh, are, 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 are doing. See, I, I was deceived. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, another aspect of our species uh, is that we are, are a real risk-taking species. <laughs> you got to wonder what was on this kid's mind. Uh, but, uh, and and uh, so there are a whole variety of different perspectives one can take about our distinctive qualities, uh, many which make us laugh, many of which make us cry. Um, and so uh, many, many different perspectives. Uh, we have a, uh, an, Im an imagination about not only risk-taking but also about other areas, the ability to uh, create abstractions about the world, uh, to be able to rent render in uh, words but also in symbols and in art things that we cannot see and yet know to be part of the real world. And so this is one of my favorite paintings representing this by Rene Magritte, looking at an egg and painting the bird that will come out of it. And so also, as we go back through time, we can begin to discover, as we do in our exhibition, uh, some of the initial roots of this ability to symbolize, to begin to create a symbolic world in which we all live today. Every single human being today uh, lives. And those, some of those artifacts include what I call the world's oldest crayons, uh, these faceted sticks of ochre and other pigments uh, dating back to 250,000 years ago from a site in Zambia, uh, the oldest representational art from another site in Africa, uh, from a cave called Apollo 11 Cave in West Africa, and the oldest uh, statues, uh, statues and musical instruments that come from uh, cave sites uh, that come from cave sites in Germany, dating back to 35,000 years ago. And so we can begin to explore some of the roots of some of these qualities um, that, um, that help us to understand and, get, and have perspective on um, the distinctive qualities of our species. Another aspect of what it means to be human is that we put ourselves into pretty uh, unusual circumstances of places to live. And so the ability to um, make, a, uh, make a fire, uh, to carry a lamp, to build a shelter, to make 
uh, snugly fitting clothing uh, are all aspects of how we have come to be able to survive in such a, uh, in such a challenging uh, surroundings. And these are all things that's also possible to trace back uh, through time in terms of the origins of where our knowledge and growing database about the, uh, the world's oldest hearths dating back to about 800,000 years ago and the ability to make tightly fitting clothing uh, with the advent and the emergence of uh, sewing needles, for example, that are known in the archaeological record back to about 30,000 years ago. We also, as a species, tend to take, uh, well, here comes the risk taking perhaps again, but to build out to the very edges of where we can live and uh, to go to, to, to live in places uh, with a sense of uh, security that, um, or at least imagine security, um, that, um, uh, that just simply does not take place in any other species in the way that it does in ourselves, including the ability to create uh, structures and major modifications of the, uh, of the landscape. And this too is something that we can explore as we do in our Hall of Human Origins through the, by tracing the origins of, uh, of stone tools, uh, for example, from uh, some of the world's oldest stone, simple stone uh, uh, flaking and technologies and archaeological sites dating back to about 2.6 million years ago to the emergence of hand axe technologies uh, lasting for about, uh, for, for about 1.5 million years, uh, largely unchanged, and an almost unimaginable period of time of unchanging technology to the origins of innov in more innovative and smaller, more mobile technologies and a more diverse toolkit and begin to understand and trace how uh, then the emergence of um, domestication of uh, plants and animals and the emergence of agricultural societies um, uh, have, have taken place by which we have become a turning point in the history of life on earth by virtue of our ability to change the landscapes and the ecosystems of the planet. Even the ability to contemplate our origins um, through new discoveries, through, through scientific research, um, is, uh, can also be considered, I suppose, part of what it means to be human. And this goes back also to our ability to abstract and to think outside of our, time, our specific time and place and to understand something about not only the future but also um, the deep past. And this just shows one of, one of my Indonesian colleagues contemplating the, uh, the skull uh, of one of the uh, most recent branches added to our family tree, that of Homo floresiensis, known as the hobbit, affectionately, um, from, uh, from about 18,000 years ago on the island of Flores in Indonesia. And in fact, Smithsonian excavations are going on in that, uh, the cave where this, um, uh, this specimen came from, this skeleton came from, uh, right as we're, as we're speaking. And also, I think that we might include a contemplation of how do we fit in or how do we relate to the rest of the natural world, to other living things? Uh, what are the connections that are there? What are the separations? What are the things that make us unique and distinct? But where are also um, the areas of, um, of unity and connection? And so there are many different ways by which uh, one can think about this question, what does it mean to be human? And what we've tried in the exhibition is to take the enormous range of experiences of, 
ways in which people come into the hall, encounter our website, encounter this question. And these, the, their perspectives on this question are informed by religion, philosophy, literature, arts, the sciences, and of course, everyday experience. And to begin to articulate that broad range of experiences that is much larger than what evolution can explain and much larger than what science can investigate and test, um, but allow people then to see the relationship of these scientific discoveries to um, this much broader and compelling question. Uh, this is my office one day when it, someone went in there and cleared out all the books on my bookshelves and, <laughs> and put specimens on there and took a really nice photograph. I was very happy about that, but all my books are still out of order when they were put back. Um, the, uh, the exhibition, of course, is based as a museum uh, study is, is based on, on objects and specimens. And this just shows you a, a, a small fraction of the Smithsonian's holdings of um, uh, original uh, objects, artifacts, and fossilized bones, as well as exact replicas, casts, uh, or 3D printouts of uh, medical scanned um, uh, data uh, for rare and unique objects that are, and fragile objects that must, of course, be kept in their country of origin. And so the, the exhibition is, uh, is indeed based on that. I could have the lights just up a slight bit. That would help me up here. Great. Uh, if, if it's all or nothing, we can just turn them off. Oh, well. Um, in any case, um, the, uh, uh, the, the exhibition itself then is um, what's been very important to us is to create a uh, respectful and welcoming place where uh, People uh, coming with so many different perspectives, so many diverse perspectives, uh, can come into the hall uh, and to encounter the, uh, the, the scientific evidence and to encounter the process of, uh, of science. And when it comes up, to uh, engage in uh, conversation and dialogue uh, with, uh, with people who wish to relate the science to their uh, religious understandings of the world. Uh, we've been able to train um, more than 120 volunteers who signed up to be docents in the hall, volunteers to help engage in the, uh, the, the conversations uh, that take place. Um, and uh, this is the conversation sometimes do require uh, what I've called when I've spoken with uh, the volunteers, uh, lowering the temperature, but it has turned out to be that's relatively rare that that's been, been necessary, that visitors do come in with the desire to learn. Um, in terms of my own experiences there, uh, one of our public events that we have in there every, uh, uh, every other week is called The Scientist is In. And uh, the one time I've done this so far before I went off to do my Kenya field research, uh, there were uh, two, uh, two Christian schools, uh, school groups who were in the, in the hall. And my experience with them and also their, their teacher um, was that they, they, they came into the hall not out of uh, apprehension about what they would learn, but rather the students were there to learn about the fossils and the stone tools and what science uh, was discovering. And that there was a much more nuanced attempt to understand um, science in the context of their religious understandings and insights and teachings. Um, and uh, this, the questions that the students were asking were things like, well, how do you know that particular fossil belongs in, in you know, with us as opposed to some other animal? 
Um, how do you know the, uh, the age of, uh, of fossils and of the dirt you find them in? Things that are part and parcel of, of everyone who's even a fan of science and of human origin science. Uh, is uh, they're interested in asking those same sorts of questions. And so that was, it's, all, it's been very, very rewarding to see that kind of, uh, kind of response to the hall. Um, the other thing uh, here is that the exhibition then um, that I'd like to mention opened, as Randy mentioned, on March 17th of this year, which was to the day the 100th anniversary of the opening of our museum on the National Mall. A uh, hundred years ago, as I mentioned to the group who was there on Thursday, uh, there were about a couple dozen, a little bit more than a couple dozen uh, fossil remains um, that uh, were relevant to the subject of uh, human evolution. Almost all of those were of uh, the group known as Neanderthals. Um, and today, there are about uh, a little bit over 6,000 fossil individuals that are known, ranging from everything from isolated teeth to nearly complete skeletons. Um, and when you add that then to the approximately, um, uh, well, many, many hundreds of thousands of archaeological remains that, uh, are, uh, that have been discovered over, that, uh, over the last number of, uh, of decades, what we're, what we're finding then is that um, there is a, quite a great volume of evidence to be able to show to the public and that because it's such an active area of high-profile science, it seemed to me necessary and seemed to the Smithsonian necessary to provide a place where the public could come see those discoveries and to understand them in terms of the emergence of qualities uh, that have distinguished our biological species Homo sapiens. And so we have in the hall, for example, things like uh, exact reproductions of what are widely recognized as the world's oldest bipedal two-legged footprint trails uh, discovered by Mary Leakey in uh, northern Tanzania. And of course, a range of fossil, uh, fossil uh, evidence uh, showing, for example, the changes in brain size over time, the decrease in facial size, here representing about uh, two and a half or 2.6 million years of technological evolution from simple stone flaking to the origin of sewing needles, and of course, in the last uh, 50,000 years, the explosion of expressive art and um, the, the, uh, the emergence of uh, human consciousness and awareness and emergent of e e uh, uh, immersion within a uh, symbolic world in which we all live. The main theme of the hall, if it had to be boiled down to a sentence, is that humans evolved over millions of years in response to a changing world. And the visitors are encouraged, invited to explore um, the uh, variety of milestones that were involved in uh, showing the emergence of human characteristics over time. Um, and when I say human characteristics, I mean the characteristics that, that distinguish Homo sapiens as unique among all other species. And uh, to be able to see these in the context of environmental change. Uh, some of the highlights, I'll just point out a few of these things. Uh, we have the, uh, the only original fossil Neanderthal skeleton. It's been housed in my lab for many, many years, and it was important for me to get that out onto the public floor for people to see, whoops, sorry, um, and uh, to see something about the life history of that individual, what you can tell from forensics about how that individual lived, how that individual died. Talking about forensics, uh, forensically accurate state-of-the-art reconstructions of early human species, whole bodies to 
uh, to a variety of, uh, of, of faces. Um, it's the first public display of the Homo floresiensis skeleton cast from Indonesia. There's a great deal of emphasis also on the process of science. Um, in the introductory part of the uh, exhibition, uh, we look at genetic evidence about how human beings are connected genetically and to uh, many other organisms on the planet. And over here is an area that has been uh, quite well subscribed based on the feedback we've been getting, which is called FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions on Evolution, in which there is a section about the relation, a series of, uh, uh, a section showing a series of questions about the relationship between science and religion, uh, and the ability to, uh, for the visitor to ask their own questions and make comments. Uh, about, um, about those subjects. Uh, this is a floor plan of the exhibit. Sorry you can't see the, the detailed uh, labeling of it. It's located, for those of you familiar with the exhibition, the big elephant would be over here in the right, uh, bottom right-hand corner, our newly opened Ocean Hall uh, over here on the right side, the Mammals Hall over on the bottom left side, and this L configuration is uh, the Hall of Human Origins. Um, what I've circled here is this, what I consider the backbone of the hall where visitors can explore the, uh, the again, the antiquity of uh, walking upright, of um, the emergence of uh, stone technology and changes in diet, um, how uh, we have changed over time in terms of our bodies and brain sizes and, uh, and other um, uh, characteristics like that, focusing especially on behavior. It's not just about anatomy but it's about what were early humans able to do by virtue of walking upright, of making stone tools, of having more complex societies, of being able to develop um, a symbolic uh, world and symbolic universe. And so some of the milestones in the evolution of human, humans include the emergence in Africa from fossils and genetic evidence suggesting a, a six million year uh, divergence of humans from other primates, uh, by four million years ago, well-established evidence of walking upright on two legs. 2.6 million years ago, the emergence of the earliest stone technologies, very simple technologies, and the ability to uh, carve meat off the bone and to uh, break open bones for the fatty, nutritious marrow, um, giving, of course, the fuel for that uh, first initial bump up in brain size. But the greatest, well, about 1.8 million years ago, the first evidence of uh, human predecessors outside of Africa. Um, by 800,000 years ago, that is the sharpest, in, began the sharpest increase in brain size, the emergence of control of fire seen through hearths from a site in Israel, uh, dating back to at least that far uh, long ago. The emergence of our own species relatively short time ago, about 200,000 years ago, based on dated fossil evidence from Ethiopia and Morocco and Kenya, um, and, um, and also based on uh, uh, predictions from the genetic evidence of genetic variation of all people across the globe today. The emergence of fishing technologies uh, for the first time and of innovative technologies nine, uh, 90,000 years ago uh, the great expression of what's called the creative expression of cave art 32,000 years ago and the emergence of agriculture uh, uh, by at least 10,000 years ago, a little bit before that, uh, which is, of course, the basis of uh, most modern-day societies today, that dependence upon agriculture. 
going back to where I live, actually there's, there's my, my field camp right there on that cliff, uh, right there. That's, that's, that's where my tent is, waiting for me to come back. Um, and uh, the, uh, our work here at Lorgas Isley over the last uh, 25 years, uh, once we realized the amount of time depth we had, allowed us to study uh, these layers after layers of different landscapes and evidence of climate change. A whole barrage of, of environmental scientists have come there, geologists, geophysicists, geochemists, to study uh, dating techniques, to study uh, environments and the tempo of environmental change over time. And this led us to come up with an idea that it wasn't simply the African savanna, the single, a single ancestral environment, that was, in a sense, the crucible of, of human origins uh, in an evolutionary sense, uh, but rather that the variability of the environment, the tendency of the environment to change, uh, was also a very important part of the emergence of one of the characteristics of our species today, which is our adaptability, our, our ability to be all over the world and to be able to uh, have ways of adjusting uh, to it. And so when we began to realize this idea, or come up with this idea, and propose it as a testable hypothesis, the environmental sciences uh, have been uh, very active, going on for decades before that, showing, uh, I know this is not really great after dinner uh, slide, uh, but uh, this is the one graph that I'll show you of the last 10 million years based on uh, deep sea ocean cores of uh, the ratio of two uh, oxygen isotopes indicating uh, changes in glacial volume, the amount of glacial ice uh, on Earth, as well as cold and warm. And what we see is that before six million years ago, there were oscillations that were uh, considerable, but met much higher degree, much higher uh, amplitude oscillations after six million years ago, increasing over time. Uh, since three million years ago, uh, strong glacial fluctuations have occurred. and the genus Homo, of which we are a member, the last surviving member, Homo sapiens, evolved during the strongest uh, global fluctuations. And this can also be tested and seen at the archaeological and paleontological sites where we study. And so just to walk you through then uh, some of this, uh, after presenting some of that context, that, for example, in the uh, tools and food section, one can see changes in technology, very, very slow paced of te technology, and then to see evidence through artifacts of the explosion of uh, technological innovation, especially over the last 100,000 years ago. I do have to tell you that in our excavations that I left just uh, last uh, Sunday, uh, that, um, uh, that it looks like we're beginning to push back some of the uh, evidence of the origins of that, of, of human innovation in technologies and stone technologies and even the use of symbols through pigments and color maybe back to as old as uh, 350,000 years ago. And we're of course right in the middle of studying this but um, that's, that's where we think the evidence is heading right at this uh, very moment. Um, in the area called social life uh, we uh, explore, we ask the visitors to explore things like well what's the evidence for the first sharing? the first sharing of food, the first evidence that food was brought from one place on the landscape back to a central point where other members of the social group would also be. And the idea of there being legs and of zebras and other sorts of uh, food brought back to actually begin this process of sharing 
goes back to at least two million, possibly as, back, as far back as two and a half million years ago. Or the uh, emergence of a gathering around the hearth, which is what this statue represents in the species known as Homo heidelbergensis. Um, and uh, those hearths go back to about 800,000 years ago, as well as some of the earliest shelters, really well-built shelters by 400,000 years ago, and even the origin of social networking, of the ability to exchange with neighboring groups uh, raw materials of stone over vast distances of hundreds of kilometers, instead of just walking a few kilometers to get some favored rock that you thought you could make a tool out of, get something of great value like obsidian, a really great raw material for making stone tools from some neighboring group hundreds of kilometers away. And those, that evidence of that goes back to between 100 and 200,000 years ago. And so again, aspects of behavior is what we're also focusing on here. We have these uh, areas of the exhibit called snapshots in time. And uh, these are uh, three uh, what I call high-def dioramas that allows the visitor to explore some of the evidence of human, of, uh, of human activity, early human activity, at three sites uh, at different periods of time. And by pressing and, and touching the evidence, it activates a conversation with a scientist that helps uh, people to, uh, the visitor to understand how scientists find out certain things about that, that uh, we know about the butchery of animals due to cut marks on the bones. We know that a particular individual died because we see the holes in the back of the skull of a leopard, made by a, le a leopard's jaw. Uh, a whole variety of forensic possibilities that are uh, um, uh, presented uh, to the visitor to help people understand how we know what scientists say that they know. With regard to the question, the thematic question, what does it mean to be human, we take this idea of, it, of a, uh, it's a question and not an answer seriously. The only place in the hall where we actually engage the visitor in this question is at a, a couple of uh, uh, kiosks back there where we ask them to tell us your ideas about what it means to be human. And let me tell you, people are sure interested in wanting to tell the Smithsonian what they think about that question. And of course, you can imagine the enormous range of possibilities, of possible answers, again, informed by uh, many different life experiences. And we, uh, we, we uh, do only a very small amount of editing, usually when teenagers are there and trying to impress us with things they know. Maybe some of those answers don't come up. Debbie loves Johnny, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, but uh, other than that, all of our answers can be found on our website. Um, in, uh, in, in the, this, this section called What Does It Mean to Be Human? Um, and so also in this area we represent uh, in this uh, wall of skulls as we call it, uh, six million years of, uh, of human evolution represented by a, only a very small amount of the evidence of uh, some of the best preserved fossil crania and skulls uh, from uh, th those six million years. And we also have an area in here that's the treasures of the Smithsonian a collection, but also has now come to include um, uh, contributions from um, museums from around the world. This is the skull display uh, representing the diverse uh, species that are part of our family tree. Um, more than a dozen species now recognized for many people, closer to about 18 different species now recognized as part of our uh, family tree. Uh, evidence about how they're dated or some commentary about how do we know. Um, that these are early humans and so on. 
And we also have an interactive here, which has been a real uh, popular, real popular with teachers and school groups that allow people to, to understand, allow visitors to understand um, how, why scientific debates take place about how do you call something a species or a different genus? Um, why, do why do scientists disagree about the shape of the family tree and the different hypotheses and how they can be tested? Uh, we also, just with regard to the matter of other contributions, uh, I don't want that there. Let me just get rid of that for a moment. Yep. Um, that uh, these are contributions that came at the opening from the Le Musée de l'Homme in, in Paris, which has been closed, but the original Cro-Magnon fossil uh, discovered in uh, 1868 basically establishing the concept of uh, human prehistory, and also the most complete Neanderthal fossil skull from the site of La Ferrisie were on display up until a, a couple of weeks ago, uh, and there will be more of these sorts of objects that will be presented as contributions from museums around the world. There are contributions from 48 different countries uh, in this exhibition. So it's not just a Smithsonian exhibition, it really is an international one. And so in addition to uh, the ability to explore the diversity of the family tree, there are these forensic reconstructions of early humans. Yes, one could represent the diversity of our family tree simply through these abstract, uh, long-winded uh, names of different species and when they lived and where they lived. But what we have done is we've gotten the best uh, anatomist artist in the world uh, to uh, reconstruct, eh, sorry, to reconstruct what these, what particular individuals of these species look like based on individual fossil skulls. Uh, basically, uh, these are reconstructed muscle by muscle and fat pad by fat pad based on knowledge of uh, uh, primate and, and human anatomy uh, and the details of the, uh, the anatomy of the, of the skull using, again, the kinds of forensic techniques that you even see on TV, CSI and that kind of, kind of thing. It's even possible there's a, in that central area, there's a place where you can even morph your own face. And this is the place where there are, there's lines of dozens of visitors uh, throughout the day. You can become a Neanderthal for the day if you'd like and send it to your own email address free of charge um, or Lucy's species or whatever you'd like to, to, to do. That's become a very popular aspect of the exhibit. Um, in addition to this, uh, this is down the uh, corridor going toward the Mammals Hall. And here we explore some of the more uh, recent aspects of what it means to be human from a, uh, a, hum a human evolution perspective. Uh, this statue of a Neanderthal uh, child based on a uh, two, actually two, two-year-old uh, skeletons uh, found of Neanderthals found in, in Syria, uh, dated back to 65,000 years ago. Um, and this interaction with a, a mom making clothing based on uh, the kinds of uh, punch awls that we know Neanderthals used. Uh, this particular uh, snapshot in time and where we represent one of the most compelling Neanderthal sites ever found from northern Iraq, a, a cave site called Shanidar, uh, where uh, we have evidence um, of uh, a Neanderthal individual having been buried uh, in a grave with seven different kinds of colorful flowers with a bed of evergreen plants, of evergreen boughs underneath the body. What's the meaning of that? 
Neanderthals generally by scientists are seen as a different species, but they had some elements of symbolism, perhaps ritual, perhaps an understanding or some sense or a feeling about the afterlife. We also uh, engage in this area here about symbols, the emergence of symbols, those crayons I mentioned, uh, the aspects of, uh, of Paleolithic art, those world's oldest statues and, and musical instruments and so on. And then in this far end of the hall, uh, this one species living worldwide theater, uh, where we present um, the over, an overview of six million years of human evolution in a five minute video, uh, but also um, focusing on the evolutionary history of our own species, Homo sapiens, over the last 200,000 years, including a time when our own species, um, this is based on a whole variety of genetic studies, um, became reduced to, there's scientific debate about this, but became reduced to uh, no more than about 10,000 uh, breeding adult individuals. Uh, I say scientific debate, that's the high end of it. The low end of the, uh, of the estimate is 600 breeding adult individuals. And whether you're anywhere in between those two ends of the debate based on, again, this what's known as a genetic bottleneck responsible for the, despite all the outward diversity of human beings today, the very small amount of genetic diversity that exists in our species uh, relative to what occurs in other species. Evidence of a genetic bottleneck, a population reduction down to, again, the estimates from 600 to 10,000 breeding individuals. I suppose you might say that we might have been an endangered species no matter which of those estimates or range of estimates you take. In this part of the hall, uh, called Humans Change the World, we trace the origins of agriculture, the development of cities, the increase in population uh, over time, some of the, the many challenges uh, that exist in our present day world with regard to energy use and a world population counter uh, that's, uh, that's shown there. Uh, science updates in this area that, sh that uh, for example, indicate that from uh, modern-day medical studies uh, that uh, each of us is, a is an ecosystem of microbes. We have more DNA and more cells of other microorganisms in and on our bodies than we have human cells on and in our bodies. And those include bacteria that are absolutely essential to not just disease but to our health. The ability to manufacture vitamin K, to digest our food and so on is uh, very, very fundamentally a part, uh, uh, involves this ecosystem of microbes that is part and parcel of our bodies. And also one of the science updates that's there now, over the last 400,000 years, changes in uh, atmospheric carbon dioxide, sea level changes, temperature changes, allowing people to see the fluctuations that have occurred over those 400,000 years. During that time, four different species, earlier species of early humans, uh, became extinct. It's also during that time that our own, own species uh, can, uh, emerged on Earth. And an area at the end of this uh, called the future, where we have a somewhat playful game, but one that is sort of for the gamers out there, all the teenagers, um, that allows uh, people to go up to three interactive stations uh, to... Uh, to play a game about what are the choices that we have uh, that are likely to occur in the future with regard to our ability to cooperate or to create conflict with one another. 
uh, to respond to environmental changes or to social changes in our lives and so on. I just want to mention very briefly that our public outreach efforts connected with the Human Origins Initiative and the, and the, uh, the opening of this hall. Um, our goal is to inspire inquiry and further the public's understanding of, uh, of science. Uh, that includes a, uh, a website that I know some of you have, uh, have already seen uh, where we have extensive content on the science of human origins, a unique uh, digital 3D uh, collection or access to fossil specimens, um, interactive floor plan, but also resources developed by the committee that Randy mentioned that he is a part, the Broader Social Impacts Committee, and I'll get back to that in a moment. An overview then of the Human Origins Initiative is that it invites the public to explore one of the most active and high profile fields of scientific discovery, and I think a very inspiring area of uh, knowledge. The hall is really meant as a celebration of becoming human, the uniqueness of, human, of humanness when seen from a scientific and evolutionary perspective, and the unity of our species. It indeed recognizes the connections humans have with all other organisms, but it also emphasizes the uh, characteristics that make our species Homo sapiens unique. And it articulates, or at least it attempts to articulate, with the larger societal values and beliefs about humanness and seeks to contribute uh, to our concerns and the public's concerns and reflections uh, in those larger areas of societal values and understandings. However, of course, there are a variety of challenges in communicating human evolution. Uh, some of the positive themes is that it is one of the most compelling questions, that is, what does it mean to be human, that one can ask. It's a, it's a focus of uh, great uh, public fascination, and it does not present conflicts for uh, many people. However, at the same time, uh, with regard to um, the public, the way in which media and surveys have helped to frame our current societal understandings of the matter of human evolution and the conflicts that it can pose is that it emphasizes dissent. Uh, not just actual scientific debate, but dissent about scientific findings. For example, the new fossil uh, shakes up everything and changes everything you ever knew about human origins, human evolution from a scientific perspective. Uh, that is not the case, and one of the reasons why we pre present this uh, exhibition is though people can have a reliable place to come to understand how new findings fit in to our growing understanding of human origins. But also they, the, the media very much sees things as a this or that, two camps kind of approach to things. And so the polls tend to present the, issue, uh, the issues in terms of belief or acceptance of evolution with the possible answers as alternatives. And this highlights, naturally highlights, the conflict mode between um, scientific understanding and religious understanding of the world. Our goal has been to develop a, I hope, a deeper public understanding and discussion about human evolution, and this requires developing ways of creating a conversation, um, making the science approachable and meaningful, and this must be done uh, through respectful conversation and uh, engagement, interaction, and dialogue with a whole wide range of religious concerns and philosophical concerns uh, on which, uh, in a sense, our stakeholders in this whole matter of, uh, of origins, of our origins, of human origins. 
With that in mind, that's the reason why we developed this broader social impacts committee to offer support and advice uh, with regard to potential responses from diverse communities and diverse perspectives uh, to this public pres presentation on human evolution. It is uh, this, this group of advisors to the Smithsonian has helped to promote respectful discussion where the science of human evolution interacts with societal understandings. Uh, the BSIC has participated in staff and volunteer training, mainly through the two uh, co-chairs of the uh, group, uh, Connie Bertka and Jim Miller. Uh, they've helped us to respond to staff inquiries, even though there have not been uh, a big, uh, any big writing campaign to the Smithsonian about this. Only about, uh, well, one letter to the director of our museum is all in the last, in the four months since the opening, and about um, uh, nine emails uh, that have some religious content uh, to them that are negative about the hall. And uh, they have been able to help us contribute to public events and programs. And so to help promote the conversation, we've asked the broader social impacts team through for a variety of help in developing uh, outreach events. Um, the first weekend of the opening of the hall, we had a, a public forum uh, at our museum on science and faith. The next one will be March 27th. I hope you have it, Randy, in your book. Um, and uh, we have, as Randy also mentioned, these hot topics, human origins today topics that are, take place right in the exhibition hall. And every other month, those are related, those are um, involved with discussions of the relationship between religion and science. Uh, on September 10th, uh, I'm going to lead uh, a first tour for, uh, for clergy. Um, that's actually been at the invitation that Jennifer was involved in, in helping to arrange. Um, and uh, David Anderson uh, in, in Maryland will be bringing a group through. But this is also something that's part of our goal. It's a shared goal uh, to, uh, to help um, begin a, a conversation and a dialogue or to continue a conversation and dialogue in the most respectful of ways. And then a, one of the uh, broader social impacts projects for 2011 is to begin to develop a congregational guide to assist the discussion of human origins uh, and the science of human evolution in church settings. However, there are, one can, must, must say, concerns, apprehensions, and obstacles to all this. There are certainly existential concerns um, that uh, many people think of when they hear the word, even when they just hear the word evolution or human evolution, that humans are somehow just a speck, something insignificant, um, that, um, that humans are just an accident, uh, then that's what they think that, that evolution means. Um, this can, in general, be um, the existential concerns can be connected with value uh, concern or concerns, concerns about values, that evolution somehow erodes my core values, what I believe about the world and what I believe about, about humanness. In fact, actually, I'm reminded about a, uh, a question that uh, Jennifer brought up during our conversation the other evening. Um, about this uh, matter, and that what I would say to that in part is that the science of human origins uh, focuses on the emergence of qualities of what makes humans distinct. Uh, just because there may be a commonality of process of emergence doesn't necessarily mean um, that human beings are just the same as any other organism, any other living thing. And so this should be at least some foundation for beginning to build beyond this just a speck and perhaps even just an accident sort of conversation. 
There are also biblical concerns. Uh, what does the science of human evolution mean with regard to Adam and Eve, with regard to the concept of created in the image of God? I'm not, I don't have time or the ability to get into such topics, but I think that it's very important to understand that um, there are a growing group of, of people who understand that these are concerns and legitimate ones uh, with regard to a religious perspective when in discussion uh, with scientists involved in the study of human origins. There's also, however, uh, matters of the representation of science and evolution. In some ways, this involves the misdefinition uh, of science, that there are um, ways in which science has been challenged by trying to be part of science, but by trying to change the definition of science, to get away from the idea that science is a matter of accumulating tangible evidence, testable hypotheses, and of being able to deal with natural material causes in the world. There's no doubt about it that that's what science tries to do. But how then that articulates with larger concerns and matters about our own humanness and our ways in which we envision this um, need to be part of real conversation at this time and not a matter of trying to define science in a different way that is simply going to send scientists running in the other direction and building a wall uh, against real conversation. And then there are also surveys that I mentioned before that tend to reiterate culturally the science and religion divide. So these are concerns and apprehensions. But when taking an actual look at human evolution and what it's about, um, I would say that there are a variety of challenges that it does uh, pose and that we do need to, uh, uh, to examine. And so I'll just deal with a few of these very briefly here uh, to conclude the talk. Um, first of all, um, there is the matter of extinction of species. What are the implications of the fact that there is no longer a scala naturae, a single ladder of progress toward humanists that has humans emerging above the rest of the natural world, but rather that we are as a species embedded in a, family, a diverse family tree? Uh, what are, what's the meaning of the idea that with all those predecessor species, including three of them, four of them over the last 400,000 years, that they represent forms of life that compounded some elements of what distinguishes human beings today, biologically and culturally, and yet they're no longer on Earth, that they are ways of life that are extinct. How can that contribute, deepen, or even begin to be the source of a conversation between Christians and people of other religious um, understandings and the science of human origins. That's a real challenge. Matters of common ancestry, common ancestry that all organisms are connected in a tree of life and emerge through natural processes over time through those common ancestors. This countermands in a way the concept of uh, unique and special and separate creation. And so for some uh, people this is a very, very serious problem with developing a conversation. The matter of natural selection. Natural selection. It's a material process. There's no doubt about it, which is why it is well tested among scientists. Uh, but this also leads to concerns over the fact that, well, origins then is just a natural process, uh, according to scientists, and that there is this problem of nothing buttery, that there's nothing but a material world, leaving no room for the divine. How does one begin a conversation given this challenge? 
And then the matter of survival and adaptability, this idea that I, rep I mentioned is, is shown in our hall, that the last six million years has been a time of tremendous environmental fluctuation and uncertainty, and that human origins has been in a part, in a sense of adaptability to uncertainties. How does that work in a world that many people would interpret from a religious perspective as having a more determined, deterministic uh, kind of pathway? There, for some scientists and some people of religious, deep religious reflection, this poses, this is a challenge that poses real problems for conversation. Well, I think at the same time that we need to consider that there are opportunities posed for conversation that are posed by human evolution, uh, opportunities for the religion science conversation. And these are what I think are the opportunities. <laughs> uh, the extinction of species. In many ways, an evolutionary perspective um, highlights the fragility of life. It highlights for me and many other scientists something about compassion, um, of wondering what were they like, uh, those that we can no longer see, but we have evidence of in, this, in the, the fossil record, and that we have evidence for, for the behaviors, the artifacts that they left behind. Um, this idea of the fragility and preciousness of, preciousness of life is perhaps an area to begin some conversation. Common ancestry. Common ancestry, yes, poses its challenges, but at the same time, common ancestry comes with this sense of this enormous kinship and unity of life that exists on Earth. And again, if one is to take this concept of unity of life and kinship seriously, then it does create a sense of compassion compassion not only for our fellow human beings, but also all forms of life. And there may be some very strong commonalities for discussion between scientists on this point with, uh, with Christians and, and members of other religious communities uh, that also value um, uh, compassion and uh, the unity of life. Natural selection, that's a little bit of a tough one. Um, and that uh, for many people, that's a hard one to, to deal with. One thing that I've played around with here is the idea that one of the things that has driven many people away uh, from a religious life and religious belief is the problem of, uh, of suffering, uh, so apparent in the natural world and human life. Uh, it's one of the reasons why it's been said Darwin became an agnostic and why even some theologians as well as scientists have become atheists. Um, is that um, this matter of uh, theodicy and the, the matter of suffering in the context of a supposedly loving God. Um, and Christians have very strong contributions to make to this question of suffering, very obviously. Well, I've wondered whether natural selection, because it is, as scientists understand it, is a material process that it provides a natural foundation for understanding suffering in a way that need not be linked to the decisions that God makes for Christians and that Christians make with regard to going toward God in a way that needs to be conflated when dealing with religious belief and dealing with aspects of understanding suffering from a natural world perspective. This is very speculative, I know, but I believe that there is some opportunity for conversation about one of the most important of areas 
of uh, concern from a theological perspective that natural selection poses. Finally, the matter of survival and adaptability. Well, this brings to the fore this matter of adaptability or adjusting uh, to a, a highly volatile world and an uncertain world. It brings to the fore our sources of resilience um, within us personally and within society. And as we face challenges ahead, those sources must include not just technological solutions and fixes, uh, but also they must include um, a combination of what science understands about the world and our beliefs and understandings that arise from uh, religious perspectives and teachings. The focus on adaptability also, in a sense, is a liberation of Homo sapiens from any given single ancestral environment, which has tended to take some, evolution, ev some evolutionary biologists and see humans as if um, we are still uh, some kind of a, uh, an Australopithecus or some kind of a, of a naked ape, and that's all that we are. But in a sense, this idea of adaptability and responsiveness to a volatile world means that adaptability is our strong suit. Well, what is the role of freedom and free will within that concept of an evolutionary biology of human beings? And this is also an area that could be uh, uh, ripe for fruitful conversation between Christian communities and scientists involved in the study of human origins. I'd just like to mention one other one, too, that's an opportunity for conversation. And that's a shared sense of awe. That's what that says at the bottom, a shared sense of awe. And that every scientist, every researcher that I know who studies this field is just awed by the sense of time and, and transformation that has taken place through their study of the natural processes of evolution. And that this is also an area of enormous possibility for conversation with Christian and diverse religious communities about this great sense of awe that is engendered by our beliefs, by our understanding, by religious faith. Well, as we compare these two lists, um, as, you, as your laughter suggests, you see that these are the same list. And this comes from thinking that a conversation that deals uh, with science and religion has got to deal with the most deep-seated uh, concerns, and that such a conversation is a genuine conversation. My own feeling, and again, to reiterate my reason for coming here tonight, is that it's time for radical dialogue, uh, for real conversation, uh, more than just friendly coexistence um, between religion and science that skirts gent gently around the, sensitive, the most sensitive issues, but fully takes into account what the most sensitive issues are. The contributions of science, is, in terms of its, its contribution to this dialogue, as you can imagine, my own feeling is, is that this conversation has got to include the findings of human evolution. I also submit to you, though, a larger point, and that when it comes to this conversation, I feel that we are still all infants. We're still all in a babbling stage. Um, we're trying to figure out how to communicate with one another and even figure out what listening to one another, what that entails. Uh, I have to say that I totally respect the many and compelling books that have been written, um, that have been written about the science-religion interface vis-a-vis uh, -vis evolution. 
but that when you're in your own room typing away and trying to make a compelling case, it's pretty easy to have a conversation with yourself and hope that you'll be listened to and understood. And so I really do think that we are infants in this, uh, this conversation, and that's because there is not yet a culture, a culture of conversation in our society that engenders respect and understanding of how difficult subjects like human evolution can play a role in bringing about a conversation that um, allows us to do something other than run and hide in uh, opposite directions. I want to iterate a point that I made at the beginning that this conversation is not one that should be shaped uh, by uh, those who are averse to religion or those averse or redefine science, but rather it requires a mature approach that nurtures conversation um, and uh, that basically begins to try to uh, reach across and build bridges rather than create the kinds of walls that have developed. This gets back to the point, and I'll close with this, this gets back to the point of why I've come here, why I've traveled thousands of miles in the middle of my main research professional obligations to, to my research community and to the Smithsonian. And that's that scientifically oriented and religiously oriented people like yourselves need to lead the conversation. Uh, this has got to include not only the diversity of perspectives in this room, but also the diversity of religious perspectives that are around. Uh, but people like yourselves, in my view, really do need to become leaders in this conversation. The membership of the ASA uh, consists, in my view, of exactly the right type of people to lead the conversation, um, not just within your organization, but also within your communities. And I would just simply close by saying, if not you, then who? Thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll come back. Uh, that was, I think, the longest uh, ovation I've ever received. <laughs> <laughs> then let's keep on. No, no. <laughs> uh, we could have one question, but uh, I didn't hand out the cards in time, so we'll, we'll take a few, uh, as long as you can handle it. Sure. Except they kick us out of the building in 10, so we have. Okay, <laughs> let's start here. Dr. Potts, I, I would like to thank you very much for the presentation tonight and for the human origins display at the Natural History Museum. It's very, very well done. Um, as a Christian, I, I've uh, tried to grapple with this for some time, and, and I'm coming to grips with the idea of common ancestry. And I think that uh, a lot of Christians can be brought to that realization that we do share a common ancestry with all of life. But I think that there are some things that will always seem to offend our sensibilities, and um, I, I'd like you to comment on one of them, and that is, uh, maybe you were touching a little bit on it with the idea of natural selection. There seems to be uh, an attempt on the part of some uh, scientists working in, in the field of human origins to explain every aspect of what it means to be human in terms of variation, 
acted upon by natural selection. Even the idea of our religiousness. And I imagine one of the responses you get often to the question of what does it mean to be human is to be religious. I mean, Absolutely. almost every culture mm -hmm. has some sort of belief in it, supernatural. Now, here's my question for you. Um, do, do you, as, uh, can you take a position and say that not every aspect of what it means to be human can be explained in terms of variation acted upon by natural selection? Did everyone hear the question? Uh, am I not still on? Or? Yeah, you're on. Yeah, okay. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the question is, um, is it possible uh, for me to take a position on a, um, a philosophical, let me just, you did not use that word, but I will use the word, philosophical position that uh, some evolutionary biologists, including people who have studied human origins, uh, human evolution, have taken that uh, natural selection explains everything, um, that, or that it does not explain any, uh, everything. Well, let me just say that um, with regard to our whole philosophy of putting this exhibition and our uh, public programming together, it has been based on the idea that uh, we're far more than our biology. We are far more than variation, um, genetic variation being acted upon by natural selection. Um, and, uh, you know, I, in some ways I think that this is obvious in the empirical world. I mean, it's the reason why, for example, at the Smithsonian, there isn't just a natural history museum and everything else is just an arm of it. Um, that there are, there's, there, there are museums of, of, of art and culture and history that can't just be explained by, by natural selection. Um, there are levels of, of, um, of um, explanation of human action in the world and of events that occur in the world that cannot simply be reduced to an ancient history of um, nature acting on uh, natural genetic variation. Uh, at the same time, the question is, what are the opportunities are there for um, the many different uh, religious, historical, cultural, and philosophical perspectives that would take that standpoint and bring it together with an understanding of human evolution. And I think that one of the areas that I vaguely touched on here, but is part and parcel of the research that actually we do, is this idea of this indeterminacy of um, uh, the emergence of human beings, not just in relationship to some singular ancestral environment, which is supposed to explain everything, but rather there is this plasticity to humanness. There is this ability to have a sense, a, a way in which humans are able to make their own world, which is so apparent to everyone, I think, today. And that this leaves a possibility, even within natural explanations, for, for human beings as being um, I don't remember all the theological terms for this, but basically actors in the world with choices to make and decisions to make, and that we come to meet uh, a world that um, has a great deal of indeterminacy in it, but also the potential for uh, 
interaction with God. Again, we'll need to keep questions short. Yeah. And my answers, too, I guess. No, your answers can be long. They can be <laughs> Yeah, uh, the question was about uh, the matter of the Rift Valley, and that's the only happening place on Earth with regard to the study of, of, uh, of human evolution and how I might want to expand uh, beyond that. Well, that's also the reason why, something I didn't talk about today, why I uh, do about, uh, about an eighth, maybe a sixth of my uh, field research in China, uh, is that there are many other parts of the world. The subject of human evolution uh, it becomes very narrow, actually, when you uh, deal with just one particular portion uh, of Earth. Now, it is true that based on all the evidence, scientific evidence of fossil finds and, and, um, and archaeological finds, that the first uh, four million years out of six is exclusively an African history. And that the genetic evidence uh, shows that we all, all of us bear uh, within our species uh, the evidence of a uh, uh, Homo sapiens as having an ancestral home in Africa. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'm always struck whenever I look at a big Landsat or other kind of satellite photograph of Africa, and I go, yes, that's where I work, Alor Gasaili. And I go, and I go, and I go, and I find this white dot that's smaller than a pinprick uh, in, in, the, in the map of Africa, in the satellite image of Africa. And so as expansive as it may look, uh, I don't know, I don't want to explain what Dr. White was, was saying. Maybe that's evidence that maybe sometimes scientists can be a little bit poetic or take license. Um, but I think that it is foolhardy for a scientist today to think that there's only one site in the world, that there is only one sliver, the Rift Valley, which would ignore, for example, exciting discoveries in Chad, Morocco, South Africa, that are taking place even within the African continent that help elucidate uh, those first four million years. Brian, go ahead. What is your opinion about the, uh, the data that was recently published about apparently some interbreeding between humans and Neanderthals? And uh, are there uh, theological implications of that discovery? I think everyone heard that question. Um, most interesting question, especially the second part, uh, which I don't think I'll be able to uh, talk to very much. But with regard to the, uh, the recent study of uh, the Neanderthal Genome Project, it's amazing that we have the Human Genome Project, um, but also that there is the ability to map the Neanderthal genome by virtue of getting ancient DNA out of fossil bones. And some of the initial uh, work that has gone on by Svante Pebo and his group at, in Leipzig, Germany, uh, on mapping the Neanderthal genome, 
uh, indicates on the basis of, I believe it's seven individuals in Africa and I think 12 or 13 individuals sampled humans, this is, uh, sampled, modern day people, sampled so far outside of Africa, that there is a, a small echo of what looked like exclusively Neanderthal, uniquely Neanderthal genes in the populations, the people who have been tested only outside of Africa and none from within Africa, suggesting that there was, during the emergence of the dispersal, the initial dispersal of people uh, out of Africa, uh, with the main burst of that coming about 60,000 years ago, beginning about 60,000 years ago, that they ran into Neanderthals and that there was some interbreeding. And that due to the fact that the population was greatly expanding, it amplified that small echo, even a small amount and small number of hybridization events of, of, of intermating, of a small hybrid zone would have ramified into that echo of about one to four percent of the human genome in those individuals who have been tested. With regard to this still, and the, sub, the, uh, the study shows this, is that this in no way uh, contradicts the idea that Neanderthals were a separate species, that they have their own genetic integrity, but that we know that with closely related species that they can develop hybrid zones on occasion, and apparently our own species uh, had that uh, opportunity and that possibility, that feasibility of that happening um, with, uh, with Neanderthals. Theological implications of that. Whew. <laughs> I hope that was a satisfactory answer. I would love to, I, I hate doing this, to come back with another question, but false religion, would, I mean, an example. I mean, I know that, I, I have a feeling I know what's on your mind, but um, I think that um, it's, it's quite difficult uh, when scientists do the work of trying to point a finger at where evidence might create evidence of a false religion. Uh, it has been part of the history of our species, certainly part of recent history, for um, religions or ideologies or belief systems to point the finger at one another. Um, I don't think that that's the right thing to do necessarily either. At the same time, there needs to be the integrity of the things that we believe, that you believe, that, that, that individuals who come together decide to believe and are, are compelled to believe because of the reality of what their experiences have been in life. Um, and so the matter of false religion is a very, very difficult one for, I think, anyone to deal with, and it should be basically not part of the discourse on science, in my opinion. Yeah, with regard to the matter of how Homo floresiensis, the hobbit, fits in, um, there, your, your question has a very nice implication that, an, an awareness that there has been scientific debate. Are they just 
uh, some form of uh, a population of odd uh, Homo sapiens uh, that got stuck on the island of Flores uh, in the uh, in Indonesian in Indonesia, or are they a separate species? The general view right now is that they are a separate species, and the reason why is that you had really a situation of the the blind men and the elephant for a while, is that those who touched the brain saw, saw it as, oh, maybe they're just a microcephalic modern human, okay? Those who touched this part of the body said that and another part. When you bring all of that stuff together, that from the shoulder to the wrist bones to the foot bones to the leg bones, the proportions of the body, uh, two aspects of the growth of the face that has now been able to be studied because we have uh, a, several, a number of individuals of this species, the growth of the jaw, for example, um, that uh, you, you can't get that out of a modern human growth pattern, no matter, no matter all the variation that exists across modern people, uh, and that they are not simply the original fossil find, that skeleton is not just a diseased individual, but this is an actual biological pattern that was unto itself. Uh, many people have said, wow, this changes a lot about human evolution when they found, it, found out about it. Um, I think, again, the consensus is that it's a really interesting annex to this enormous building of human evolution. It's a kind of a, if you will, um, an evolutionary laboratory where there are some really interesting things going on with regard to how uh, island dwarfism is what it's called. That is, the, when, when organisms, when mammals in particular, but also vertebrates in general, get to islands, the large uh, species tend to become small because of resource limitations. For some reason also, the small species like rats get large. Uh, and so on the island, island of Flores with the hobbit uh, are, is a, a form of stegodon uh, elephant where on the mainland they're big elephants. On the island of Flores they're one meter tall. Uh, and it looked like the hobbit lineage was also susceptible to that same biological principle of dwarfism. My prerogative of asking a question here, Ubit, and then we'll have to close up after one more. I wondered if you could help me understand a little bit more about the out-of-Africa hypothesis versus the multi-regional hypothesis. As I understand it, there are two or possibly three major phases of migration out of Africa, but nevertheless, Homo erectus or these really came out of Africa long ago, but all of those went extinct? Is there really just one source of Africa more recently? Yeah, it's a good, uh, yeah, a, a good question. Again, um, partly because of, um, for the last 10 years I've noticed, uh, with regard to media coverage, is that the reporters always want to have the two camps because it doesn't become interesting unless you have two camps to present and that they are probably worrying with one another. And so the idea of out of Africa replacement is one idea, and the other idea is, yes, an early out of Africa, but an evolution of Homo sapiens from earlier humans over multiple regions, multiple continents. Those are two different ideas. The evidence from both the fossils as well as the genetics, especially from the genetics of looking at all modern human uh, genetic variation is that the, out of, the late out of Africa hypothesis uh, is more the winner than the loser <laughs> in that scientific debate. 
what I think you're referring to, Randy, also is that, in fact, this is my work in China that I do, that we're studying the earliest evidence of Homo erectus out of Africa, which we published an article last year showing that the earliest evidence of reaching East Asia was about 1.7 million years ago, uh, well before the origins of our own species. And that the earliest evidence uh, of fossils and archaeological remains for out of Africa uh, comes from the Republic of Georgia at about 1.8 million years ago. Okay. And so that's an early out of Africa leading to Homo erectus and a diversification, Homo heidelbergensis, a few other species that then diversified uh, while there was also diversification going on in Africa. But that by around 200,000 years ago, we see evidence from all modern human mitochondrial DNA, the evidence of an African origin of Homo sapiens. And then what happens? Well, if you look at the nuclear DNA, and this is looking at many different genetic systems as independent entities, we all bear the stamp of a second or nth out of Africa, later out of Africa, uh, that began around 60,000 years ago. Now, there was about 130,000 years ago an initial emergence, initial expression of Homo sapiens out of Africa, but apparently that was a short-lived ephemeral experiment, if you will. That's how geneticists look at it, at least. And that's how uh, paleoanthropologists, paleontologists look at it as well. But rather that we've all come to agree upon the combination of fossil and genetic evidence that the real out of Africa that then led to the um, all of us today uh, occurred while other species populations like Homo erectus, Homo neanderthalensis, Homo floresiensis, all were becoming smaller and smaller and smaller populations and became extinct. The extent to which there was a human, a Homo sapiens cause of extinction in any of those instances of uh, other species extinctions uh, is uh, not clear, or I would say actually the evidence is very slim. One final question, and we have to go. Who will get Dave? Okay. Um, I think this ties in some of the stuff from earlier today, particularly uh, Dr. Miller's lecture. Um, in constructing your exhibit, I, I feel like the greatest barrier to reaching the general public, in my opinion, would be. Um, the kind of this is how science works question of, um, you know, we construct from the evidence we have the most probable picture of what actually happened. But when the general public sees that and hears that, they say the most probable picture, well, then that's not definitely what happened. And then they start to do the whole few camps that you're talking about, and they, they put the camp here, and they're not very good at saying that they can't be. 1% they say 10% or 20% and that starts to get, I don't know what I'm talking about this. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but keep going. This is good. How, how do you um, diagrammatically, I know you talked a little bit about how you dialogically do this in terms of dialogue. Um, how do you diagrammatically and uh, exhibitionally address that in, in, in your exhibit? And, general in age, it may be about climate change also. Yeah, it's an interesting question. We could stay here. We, we might need beds in here if we really got into this topic. Uh, but uh, in brief, um, we don't deal with 
actually in the exhibit, even in my own thinking about science, the most probabilistic. Uh, in a historical science, that may be true with regard to certain kinds of modeling sciences, that you assign probabilities to this model versus that model versus another model. In our field, and I think in most historical sciences, uh, we deal with um, uh, this, is, this is what we can confidently say with regard to, for example, if we're dating a particular fossil or stratigraphic layer in which it comes from, that these combined dating methods gives us this confidence about this particular age. This is the sample of fossils and archaeological remains that we have that allow us to understand the emergence of a particular behavior or species that we see in the fossil record. But that this is an area that, that's so rampant with discovery, that's so exciting, that it's really the, the keeping people up to date is how we do it in the exhibit. For those who were there on Thursday night, we have this fairly large screen called What's Hot in Human Origins. And as soon as the embargo is lifted on an, uh, a uh, paper coming out in Nature or Science or Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the minute that embargo is lifted, we have up there what the researcher, what the research paper says it has found. And to give people an idea that this is an, uh, a field that, that, is that is cumulative in terms of the evidence and in terms of even overturning evidence. And the key there, and where I would see as a slight difference from uh, how you framed it in the probabilistic sense, is this matter of testing hypotheses. Is that uh, anything we know is out there to be tested with, again, empirical, with uh, tangible evidence, and doing what we can, which may not be all that you might want and all that the public wants, but doing what we can with testing of material causes. I think this is long enough. Thank you so much for coming to Susan has an announcement, and then you can go. I'd just like to announce that 